From house fire to double homicide. You can see all the windows are blown out, the walls are gone black. The grisly discovery inside a burned out Richmond home. Judgment day for faith groups. We think it's arbitrary and discriminatory. Churches lose their court battle to hold in-person services. And reckless hikers putting themselves and others at risk. And they've chosen to walk across the pipe like it was a tightrope. It's a crazy daredevil act. The landslide that took out a popular trail and how some people refuse to stay away. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. An early morning house fire in a Richmond neighborhood became a double homicide investigation today when two bodies were found in the home. Global's Aaron MacArthur is live in Richmond and Aaron, this does appear to have at least one of the hallmarks of a gang killing. Yeah, that's right, Sophie. It's not unusual at all to see evidence destroyed by fire in a crime like this. In this particular case, it's been taken to a new level. Yep, it's a fire truck, yep. An early morning fire leading to the grim discovery of two bodies inside this East Richmond home. Neighbors reported hearing bangs and then reported the Rathburn Drive house on fire. The integrated homicide team now trying to identify the victims. The injuries suffered by the victims were consistent with a homicide, so IHIT was called in. This double homicide looks to bear the hallmarks of organized crime. There is nothing left of that vehicle. IHIT now believes a car fire in Surrey is connected to the crime scene in Richmond. A BMW SUV found burning near 16th Avenue and 194th Street. IHIT is asking anyone with information, including CCTV, CCTV footage and dash cam footage from both Rathburn Drive and the area of the burnt out BMW in Surrey to please contact IHIT. Richmond Mounties have responded to this neighborhood already this year for a shots fired call. People who live in this neighborhood baffled as to what's going on. I woke up 5.30 in the morning to cops at the door and then they came again at 9, woke us up and... Yeah, just haven't really wanting to let us walk her down the street. Forensics teams continue to scour both crime scenes, looking for evidence that appears to have been deliberately destroyed by fire. Now, IHIT's murder solve rate hovers about 60%, and it's cases like this that are notoriously difficult to solve. It could be weeks or months before a lead of any significance is discovered. Sophie? All right, thanks for that. Aaron MacArthur reporting for us in Richmond tonight. Investigators are piecing together the final moments of an unidentified woman whose body was found in Burnaby. The burned remains were found in the 4300 block of Garden Grove Drive at about 2 Thursday morning. Police still don't know who the woman is, although they say she is under 5 feet tall and may have been in the neighborhood for up to two hours before she was found dead in a brush fire. Through an aggressive neighborhood and CCTV canvas, IHIT has learned that the woman may have been in the area for up to two hours prior to the fire being reported. Also around the same time, there was a dark-colored SUV or hatchback-style crossover vehicle that was seen in the 4300 block of Garden Grove Drive. It was right near the park, and it was there just before the fire. Police say a similar vehicle was seen leaving the area just after the fire. IHIT is asking for anyone in the area between midnight and 2 a.m. to contact police. 
And police say more reports are now coming in after a Vancouver woman shared video of a frightening incident where she was followed through the city. Hey, do you mind if I, guys, if I sit with you guys? This guy's literally been following me in circles yeah, that's cool. for like 40 minutes and I've been recording it. Jamie Coots filmed the encounter on Wednesday evening. She was walking to the store when she noticed a man following her. Despite stopping to let him pass and turning a number of times, the man stayed just behind her even when she pulled out her phone and started filming him. Coots eventually joined a group of strangers at a skate park, and when she asked them for help, the man was chased off. Vancouver police say after Coots' story aired, they heard from other women with similar experiences. We do take this stuff very seriously and, and um, we only know that it's going on when people call police. So thanks to this uh, victim who's made, um, made this uh, very scary situation known, we have other victims have come forward that we are investigating as well and so we will continue to do so. If you recognize the suspect or if you have been victimized, contact Vancouver Police. Now to COVID-19 in BC and unfortunately the highest daily case count we've seen so far this year. We have 737 new cases. That brings BC's total to 90,786. Just over 5,200 of those cases are active with 292 people in hospital, 85 in the ICU and two more people have died. One bit of better news, 24,438 doses of vaccine were administered on Thursday. Keith Baldry joins us live from Victoria with more. Keith, no in-person update from health officials today. Mm-hmm. But uh, when it comes to Thursday's announcement, 300,000 frontline workers getting the vaccine. What do we know about prioritizing within those groups? Yeah, it's already started. This is the AstraZeneca vaccine. 68,000 doses are going to be first and foremost uh, to industrial work camps like Site C, Coastal Gas Link, uh, the Transit Mountain expansion, Pipeline Expansion, and some agricultural facilities and food processing facilities. But after that, the question is, who goes first amongst these groups? And Dr. Bonnie Henry talked about that yesterday, pointing out that the priority amongst the priorities are going to be places where there's high risks, where there's uh, hot spots and challenges facing local communities. I'll have a map in a moment that will show you what, in a closer detail what we're talking about. Here's Dr. Arbani Henry. We're doing it uh, based on risk in, in many areas. So uh, we will be looking at targeting, for example, the, we know where some of the hotspots are uh, in the lower mainland. Some communities are having more challenges than others. So uh, that will be all done through partnerships with the health authorities. So we will be reaching out to you, and it is, uh, for the most part, it'll start early in April. So over the next uh, few uh, weeks, we'll be reaching out and, and coming up with a plan across the province for addressing each of these areas. So where are these hot spots and risky areas? I think you can get a pretty good sense of that when you look at these maps from the Center for Disease Control website, the latest case numbers. So a province-wide map, the lighter areas have relatively few cases of COVID. It's the dark shaded areas that have the worst cases of per capita. So much of BC is yellow and white, not a lot of COVID. Take a look at Metro Vancouver, though, and you'll see what I'm talking, what she's talking about when you talk about a hot spot. Surrey is the number one hot spot in all of British Columbia, surrounded by other communities in the Fraser Valley and in 
Vancouver Coastal. It's more than likely that people who work and live there who are these frontline workers will get access to the vaccine ahead of those people, even though other people do the same job that they do uh, when they live in other communities that don't have anywhere near the transmission that we're seeing in Metro Vancouver. Today, more than 700 cases, more than 400 of those were in Fraser Health and of those, much of them in Surrey. So that's where the targets are going to be for the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, in terms of the first rollout. Mm-hmm. Got to get those numbers under control. All right, coming up later tonight on the News Hour, Keith, we're going to uh, see a portion of your sit-down uh, chat with Dr. Mm-hmm. Bonnie Henry one year into the pandemic. Yes, you know, I'm on the call every every briefing, more than 250 briefings with her. So we decided not to have the same type of questions we ask in those daily news or weekly news conferences, which are very sort of up-to-date and technical. This is more of a personal conversation of where uh, we've been and how we've gone through the past year in a pandemic that's been quite extraordinary, including her own personal journey. Looking forward to that. All right. Thanks for that, Keith. Lawyers for three B.C. churches say they're disappointed by a B.C. Supreme Court ruling that upholds the ban on in-person religious services. As Nadia Stewart reports, they say the number of COVID infections in churches don't tell the entire story. We're very disappointed. Um, We're surprised. Speaking on behalf of the Lower Mainland Church's fighting provincial restrictions on religious gatherings, lawyer Paul Jaffe says the dismissal of their legal challenge is not the outcome they were expecting. The churches in this case, their evidence is very compelling as to the degree they were uh, applying all of the well-recognized protocols. But because they were religious, it seems, a distinction was made and they were shut down and the other activities weren't. In Thursday's ruling, Chief Justice Christopher Hinkson said though the ban is indeed an infringement on the rights of freedom of religion, it is justified under the law, saying the orders represent a reasonable and proportionate balance. But Jaffe says the province presented no medical evidence as to why churches must remain closed, while bars, restaurants and other businesses can open. These are not uh, expressly protected constitutional rights. Whereas the churches have a constitutionally protected freedom of religion and freedom of peaceful assembly. In a statement, Dr. Bonnie Henry says, I have great respect for the justice system and am thankful for the chief justice's thoughtful decision upholding public health orders in regards to religious gatherings. She says they are working with faith leaders to discuss a gradual return to in-person services. And we'll have uh, guidance on that, uh, I'm hoping, early next week for people. The ruling did provide some insight around COVID-19 transmission in religious settings. Between March of last year and January of this year, in the interior region, 11 places of worship were connected to a total of 20 cases. Five places of worship were linked to 40 cases in the northern region. For Fraser Health, seven places of worship were linked to 59 cases. And 25 places of worship in Vancouver Coastal Health were connected to 61 cases and one death. The ruling did, however, undo language around banning outdoor protests. Now the question is whether the churches will appeal the decision to keep them closed for now. Nadia Stork, Global News. Well, as the Meng Wanzhou extradition case continues in B.C. Supreme Court, Global News has learned of another similar case that's about to begin, involving alleged links between an Iranian airline, the Revolutionary Guards and terrorist groups. What our investigation has revealed just ahead, plus the two-hour trial of Michael Spavor in China. Why what happened in court is still a mystery and the show of support outside. That's in just over a minute. 
predators exploiting two powerful human emotions to scam victims out of millions. The warning from Vancouver police later on the news hour. And BC gangster Jared Bacon is out of prison, joining society once again. The strict new conditions that go along with his release. That's coming up. Right now, though, the first of two trials for the two Michaels detained in China has ended without a verdict. Staff at the Canadian Embassy and foreign diplomats waved to a police van that might have been carrying Michael Spavor from the courthouse in northern China. The closed court hearing lasted only about two hours, and Canadian diplomats were refused access to Spavor before the trial. He and fellow Canadian Michael Kovrig are facing charges of espionage. There's been no pronouncement of a verdict. Uh, so that leaves it uh, remains unclear what has transpired in the courtroom, uh, and we remain frustrated about that. Uh, but then, nonetheless, we will continue to work uh, diligently for the uh, immediate release of uh, Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig. Chinese courts have a conviction rate of more than 99%. Michael Kovrig is set to appear in a separate trial on Monday in Beijing. Both men have been detained overseas since 2018 in what is widely viewed as retaliation for Canada's arrest of Chinese tech executive Meng Wanzhou at the request of the United States. And in a Vancouver courtroom, lawyers for Huawei's CFO are questioning the actions of Canadian officials immediately following her arrest at YVR in December 2018. At that time, Meng was asked by an RCMP superintendent about U.S. concerns over Huawei products and if the company had been selling to Iran in defiance of U.S. sanctions. Meng's lawyers say those issues were of no concern to Canada and were only asked to assist the U.S. investigation. Meng's legal team is arguing her extradition case should be stayed because her rights were violated at the airport. Now, as Canada continues to be embroiled in the extradition case of Meng Wanzhou, another similar case has flown under the radar until now. Global News investigative journalist Stuart Bell has more on an extradition case heading to B.C. Supreme Court with ties to terrorist organizations and sanctions against an Iranian airline. How it all started at a Vancouver International at Vancouver International Airport. Just a month after Meng's high-profile arrest at Vancouver Airport, it turns out the same scenario was repeated, but much more quietly this time. After landing in Vancouver in January 2019, an Iranian businessman was similarly arrested on a U.S. extradition warrant. His name is Syed Aboud Sari. And like Meng, he's wanted in the U.S. for alleged bank frauds that relate to evading sanctions on Iran. Sari's lawyer declined to comment in advance of an extradition hearing set to begin next month. But Canada's Department of Justice confirmed the arrest, saying Sari was being afforded a fair process before the B.C. Supreme Court in accordance with extradition law. Documents obtained by Global News show that Sari lives and works in Dubai and is accused of helping the airline used by Iran's Revolutionary Guard violate sanctions. Mahan Air was sanctioned in 2011 for allegedly moving weapons and personnel for the Quds Force, the branch of the Revolutionary Guard that supports terrorist groups like Hezbollah. According to the U.S. charges, Sari was a principal player in front companies that helped Mahan Air move money, and he made misrepresentations to U.S. financial institutions to cause them to unwittingly conduct international U.S. dollar transfers on behalf of Mahan Air. 
For his part, Sarias argued the evidence against him is unreliable and he was not a principal in the banking transactions. He also says border agents interviewed him and searched his electronic devices in order to assist the U.S. investigation, something he called an abusive process. The Canada Border Services Agency declined to comment. This is Stuart Bell reporting for Global News. Up next, caterers cut off by COVID. At this point, people are, are pulling the plug, and so we're getting one to three cancellations a day right now. What they say they need in order to survive another pandemic summer. And back in business, the little fairies hoping to stay afloat despite the restrictions. Counterflow is out at the Massey Tunnel, and northbound traffic is finally eased off from Delta. Don't forget about overnight roadwork further south. Catering companies in our province are pleading for help as they face another summer without big events. BC's top doctor says weddings and funerals will be similar to last year's, small and with many restrictions. But as Paul Johnson reports, caterers say they could make it through if they were granted the same rules as restaurants. So many good things to eat at Joy Road Catering. In normal times, Everything in the kitchen here would soon be on its way to a platter and an event. This time of the year, menus would be getting tweaked for their high season, spring and summer weddings. Take a guess how this year is shaping up. In the last two weeks, we've had 25 cancel. While other parts of the hospitality sector got the green light to reconfigure their businesses for COVID safety and earn some revenue. BC's independent caterers say they're exactly where they were a year ago. We right now are in limbo, uh, waiting to hear what's going to happen. Joy Road's owner, Brett Turner, says caterers are a casualty of the ongoing ban on social gatherings. Though not as big and well-organized as restaurants, their footprint in the economy is significant. He says up to 20,000 British Columbians find employment in catering in their summer busy season. Jason Harper is one of them. We're a fairly large sector um, of the food industry, and we've been completely forgotten, left to the sidelines with no opportunity for a, a chance to survive. With the loss of a second summer posing an existential threat to their business, they're trying to convince health officials to allow catered events outside with all of the necessary social distancing and contact tracing. We're asking to uh, be given the same rules as restaurants where we can go and set up a responsible dining atmosphere outdoors in a field or in a very large venue. But so far the word from Victoria is not encouraging. Turner's been told there is no plan to relax the rules anytime soon. It's going to be ugly to be very honest. In Vancouver, Paul Johnson, Global News. Now a tiny bit of optimism in BC's capital as tourism operators are seeing small signs of a rebound. The capital is normally buzzing during the summer, but the pandemic means most visitors have stayed away. As Kylie Stanton reports, the situation is dire, but businesses remain hopeful. So just to let you know, my name is Jerry. I'm going to be your captain today, your tour guide. Climbing on board and getting out onto the water feels like home enhanced safety protocols and all. And I ask you to keep your mask on during the tour. We'll go from there. A year into the pandemic and after several extended closures, Victoria's Harbour ferries are finally up and running. Could be better. Fewer trips, socially distanced, with a focus on locals. Yeah, we're from here. Uh, I'm from Central Sandwich, actually. I'm from Sioux. You can either kind of 
stay down in the mud pit and go, woe is me, or you can climb to the top and say, you know, I'm going to do whatever I can do. It's very rough up there. So. It's an approach other operators are taking as well. Prince of Wales whale watching has started up again after shutting down back in November due to COVID-19 restrictions. It's now offering private Zodiac tours. The hope is to get the larger boat operating over the weekend. And while it may not be a lucrative business plan, it's a start. You know, I don't think that March is going to be um, anything to write home about. But, you know, as the old accountant saying goes, it's all better than nothing. Despite vaccinations rolling out, the provincial health officer has been clear. International travel, large gatherings and conventions are on hold. And, you know, things like um, cruise ships coming into BC are not, not going to happen this year either. It's left the tourism sector that relies so heavily on international travel scrambling to reinvent itself. But make no mistake, the situation is still dire. All businesses rely on a mix of domestic, regional and international travelers. Um, you can't just take whole segments of customers away. So it's wonderful that there's some activity here amongst locals while they can't also go anywhere. That's not a sustainable strategy. The Harbour Ferries estimates more than 50% of its business is tied to cruise ships, but the crew would rather remain optimistic. Some light at the end of the tunnel. Instead, focusing on the other half. 50% of something's better than 100% of nothing. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Up next, a former Mountie calls out the force. Just this hopeless anger that nothing is going to change. After the apparent suicide of a new recruit, what some say must happen next. Plus. It was such a strange time. It almost felt like time slowed down. A year into BC's pandemic, Dr. Bonnie Henry reflects on how it began, where we are now, and what the future might hold. Well, it's definitely been a day over here at the Lionsgate Bridge. Southbound volume is still really slow after clearing earlier problems over at the Iron Workers Memorial. Don't go there or either. It's absolutely terrible. For 47 years, Kermac Collision and Auto Glass has provided unmatched superior customer service and satisfaction. With 18 lower mainland locations, there's a Kermac in your neighborhood. Visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Notorious BC gangster Jared Bacon has been released from prison again. The former member of the Red Scorpions and one of the Bacon Brothers gang was jailed in 2012 on drug charges. He was released in 2016, early due to a clerical mistake. Since then, he has breached his conditions and was sent back in. The latest time in August after he was arrested for disobeying his conditions. In a decision released today, the Parole Board of Canada once again is allowing the 37-year-old back into the community. Among the restrictions he faces, he must live in a halfway house and get a job. He must also disclose any personal financial information and take his medication. A former veteran RCMP officer who has become a fierce critic of the force says the recent apparent suicide death of a young Richmond Mountie suggests the federal force is in need of a major overhaul. Rumina Dea reports. Hey, Jess. <laughs> Constable Jasmine Tiara's goal was to follow in her uncle's footsteps to serve and protect. The 25-year-old Richmond Mountie, four weeks pregnant, says her family's lawyer when she died from a single gunshot wound to the head in an apparent suicide. I thought things were going to change and here we are again discussing the death of a member. Former veteran Mountie Janet Merlot led the fight in a class action lawsuit 
settled against the RCMP in 2016, resulting in a $125 million payout to more than 2,300 female members who faced harassment, discrimination and sexual assault within the force. People are dying, people are losing their lives, they're losing their careers. And I've gone from, from that optimistic, finally, you know, we've gotten through this, to just this hopeless anger that nothing is going to change. Merlot raises serious concerns in Constable Tiara's case, especially because she was a new recruit with just over two years on the force. Tiara's family said she had been in a relationship with a senior officer also from the Richmond detachment, which was not public. Anytime that you have a senior officer, superior officer in relationship with a junior officer, um, you have a power imbalance. While the cause of Constable Tiara's death is still unknown, the RCMP confirmed to Global News last week that it is investigating allegations of an inappropriate relationship with her supervisor. Merlot is adamant the only path to accountability and tangible change is through an independent body where RCMP members could safely launch complaints within the ranks. We have begged for years for an outside independent entity. If they wanted to clean it up and they wanted to stop the deaths, the loss of careers, all they have to do is welcome this outside entity. Meanwhile, Constable Tiara's family continues its fight for answers. After going public on Global News, an autopsy was finally done this week. The family patiently waiting for the results of at least three investigations by the coroner, IIO and RCMP. Romina Dea, Global News. Vancouver police are warning the public about a surge in cryptocurrency scams. The VPD says over the past few weeks, they've become aware of a number of cases of romance and investment scams, where connections begin on social media and end when the victim sends cryptocurrency to the con artist who then disappears. Police say these crimes are so prevalent, they're aware of a number of local victims who've lost close to $2 million over just one week. And warn, those cases are probably just the tip of the iceberg. Cryptocurrency frauds are difficult to investigate, and the chance of locating and identifying suspects are low, uh, as suspects are often overseas and they're masked, um, their identity is masked through sophisticated, um, untraceable VPNs. Victims are typically lured with the idea that they will be part of an, either an opportunity to make money or a new friendship or a new romance. Our investigators do believe that this crime is underreported as victims do feel shame or they might feel embarrassment coming forward to police. Police are reminding everyone to be very suspicious if they are asked to make money transfers to someone they met online. Her message to be kind, be calm and be safe has become a touchstone for many British Columbians since the beginning of the pandemic. Now, one year after the first state of emergency declaration and public health orders, Dr. Bonnie Henry sat down with our Keith Baldry for a look back at the past 12 months and what we've learned, what we've lost and where she thinks we're headed. You've talked about we could be in a post-pandemic situation 
late, you know, midsummer, late summer. What would that look like? Will you still be wearing masks, still keeping your physical distancing, but maybe gathering more? Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure for sure, of course, because everything changes. Um, but I and I think most of us are sort of realizing that COVID's probably not going away, but the pandemic will, which means it'll be part of our life. There may be times when we'll go back to wearing masks, where we'll go back to making sure we have to keep distances or at least being really conscious about staying home if we're sick and getting tested. And um, it'll become part of how we deal with our respiratory season. But I think by the time we get, uh, you know, most people in BC with uh, one of the safe, effective vaccines we have, um, so by the summer, we will be able to have those gatherings again in a safe way. Right now, I think we need in public to wear masks if we're immunized. But by the summer, yeah, I think we'll be back to having small gatherings. I, the things that I don't see us having this year are those big international meetings and conferences and and cruise ships. <laughs> and and I always say it somewhat jokingly, but you know, we'll never have to stop cleaning our hands. <laughs> I remember one of the very first briefings we had with you. You told us, you know, nothing's ever set in stone in this pandemic. Things are subject to change. We're going to evolve. We're going to learn things. Uh, and again, uh, we're going to have to learn to live with this virus and we're not going to eradicate it, at least not immediately. Is this sort of still the guidance for everyone? Yeah, you, you know, this is, uh, and I've been saying it as science in action, <laughs> because I, I, I've come to recognize that things like uh, change is very upsetting for some people. Um, and it, it triggers that feeling that we don't know anything and that we're making mistakes. Whereas it really is learning as we go about the virus, about what we need to do now about the vaccines and where they work and how they work and, you know, what's the best interval. So change is inevitable. And, uh, you know, I always jokingly say, you know, a plan is a basis for change. <laughs> and, and yes, uh, we're going to try and explain why we're changing and where the information is coming from. And making decisions in uncertainty is uh, very much a challenge. And that's, you know, that's what we need to do sometimes. And finally, I know anxiety never disappears in this thing, but are you more hopeful now that we're going to get through this than perhaps a few months ago? I found this winter to be very, very hard because we had the promise of vaccines, but not soon enough and not in enough quantity. I'm just very, very thankful that we were able to get vaccine into long-term care. Um, so yeah, I am hopeful now. And I've, I've been sort of saying we're in that phase. I, I'm hopeful, but I don't want to be too hopeful because we still have many unknowns that we're still learning about. But we have that hope of vaccine and that's ramping up. And so we need to you know, keep our pandemic reality at an even keel. I still get very, very anxious when we start to see numbers that we're seeing. And because I know it's affecting people differentially. It's affecting some populations more than others. And, you know, that's the focus right now on, on workers and keeping workers safe because the workers that are affected are, are ones uh, that are often at the lower edge of the end of the wage spectrum, people who may not have the agency to say, no, I'm not going into work today. Um, and they deserve protection too. Well, best to end on a hopeful note. Yeah. So thank you very much for this and best of luck in the, in the weeks and months ahead. Hopefully it's not months and months, but uh, hopefully the end is in sight. Thank you. I hope we, we, will have, we will have a good summer, I think. And yeah, thanks so much. 
Let's hope you can catch the full sit-down interview that Keith had with Dr. Henry on our website, globalnews.ca slash BC, or you can check it out tomorrow and Sunday. It'll be on BC One at 11.30 a.m. and at 5 p.m. Up next, hazardous conditions on a popular trail. People are not taking the safety message seriously. How the risk isn't enough to hold back determined hikers. And later, when the country club dress code is more of a suggestion than a hard and fast rule. How far this golfer had to go to get out of the mud. Closer. One point closer. (laughs) One point at a time. That's okay. You know, sometimes the climbs are slow and long and steep, but if you just keep putting one hand in front of the other, you might get there. (laughs) Eventually. Uh, Tanner Pearson will be out the next month at least with a lower body injury. We think it might be an ankle problem. Suffered against Ottawa earlier this week. That means if the Canucks had any thoughts of trading Pearson before next month's deadline, it might not be as easy now. It also means it's a pretty good thing they got Jimmy Vesey from Toronto on waivers because he can help fill in for Tanner Pearson on the Canucks' top six line. He was out there tonight. Top six, I should say, not top six line. Two lines make up the top six, of course. Okay, there's Jimmy Vesey wearing 24. And this is the first goal of the game for the Habs on the power play. Rebound off the post, and Corey Perry's right there. Can't blame Demko on that one. Montreal now has a two-on-one shorthanded break, but a save by Demko off Yoel Armia keeps it at 1-0. Look at JT Miller just dropping Brendan Gallagher. Holy, that was world wrestling entertainment. And then Adam Gaudette tipping in the pass and tying it 1-1. And then Nils Hoaglander. Puts one in front. Watch him protect the puck here, keep the play going, and then Nate Schmidt's shot is deflected in by Hoaglander. Nice play by the rookie, 2-1 for the Canucks. Third period, Nick Suzuki, quick shot, nope, Demko safe. But a puck over the glass penalty. Late in the game, allowed the Canadians to get a six-on-four power play with a net empty, and this time Suzuki doesn't get stopped by Demko. It's 2-2. In overtime, just after Montreal missed on a breakaway, it's JT Miller. Oh, very impressive. Win for the Canucks, which gets them to within a point of Montreal, and they will play again tomorrow. 3-2 the final in OT. What about the Flames? They're in Toronto to take on the Leafs. And how about this? The rare Chris Tanev goal. That made it 3-1 Flames. Toronto would come back. In fact, 40 seconds after that, Alex Kerfoot's wrister deflects in off a Flames defenseman, and it's 3-2 Calgary after one. It would be 3-3, but then Mark Giordano. Nice shot. And I hate those Toronto uniforms. But that's just me. 4-3 Calgary with a win. Uh, The Seattle Seahawks have re-signed running back Chris Carson to a two-year contract worth around 14.6. The uh, Seahawks love to run, and Carson has been their best running back since the days of Marshawn Lynch. The only downside, he's been a little bit injury-prone in his career. All right, the tennis. Semi-final action in Dubai. Dennis Shapovalov walking out between the burning schoolhouses. Taking on Lloyd Harris. Shapovalov would win the first set. 
He was up 4-2 in the second set, but way too many unforced errors. 41 in the match. Harris won the second set 6-4. Third set. This rally was 33 shots long before finally the man in baby blue, Shapovalov, wins it. Match point. Shapovalov, nope, that's out. And so is he in the semis. All right, Wesley Bryan. He didn't make the cut, but he does make the highlights. Are you supposed to wear clothes? Well, you don't want to be, listen, this is why you don't want to be going commando if you're a PGA player. Always have clean underwear if you have to go to the hospital or if you have to hit a shot on television. It works both ways. Aaron Wise uh, leads by three at minus 12. Adam Hadwin made the cut at minus two. Roger Slow made the cut, so did Mackenzie Hughes at even par. There is your Champions League quarterfinal draw. It's quite possible the three English teams could make the final four. Bayern Munich, I would say, is still the favorite. Why am I looking over there? Because that's where the monitor is. Oh, you're, oh I thought you were looking they at They caught me. me looking over there. Very confused. All right, uh, standby, Squire. We need you after this break because Satellite Debris is next. This is what we've been waiting for. Okay, so this first song on the first commercial is definitely an earworm. Oh, no. I was singing it all day, and I don't even know what the song is. Today, we're going to learn about the wonders of Cricket's Refer-A-Friend program. When you refer a friend to Cricket, you both get $25 in account credit. Incredible, right? But who can be a friend? Let me tell ya. A ninja spy who cannot fly, the IT guy who loves pet tie, taxi driver, deep sea diver, they can be a friend. Weird co-worker from New Yorker, a fried brother, toga lover, a nice mobster, but no lobster, they can be a friend. Who can be your friend? Let's just run that again. I just want to sing that again. So happy. I know. It you makes can you be happy. a friend too, Squire. We can all be a friend. That is the, that is the message of the song. Mm-hmm. And it's a good message. Uh, this is from Pedigree. What does it take to be a Pedigree puppy? The right equipment. All right, let's see some hustle out there, guys. That's right. Stay low. Shorty, I want to see you post up. 
going to be a long season. There's a lot of cuteness in set, Debrina. There is, there is. Okay, last one. It's kind of cute, too. This is from Germany. It's a McDonald's commercial, and the young man in this gets very tricky at the end. Here we go. McDonald's just burned the Burger King. The Burger King's going to have to retaliate with some some. They'll do something, I'm sure. The king will do something. (laughs) All right, last full day of winter today, Christy. I forgot about that. That's right. We officially change over to summer to, sorry, spring. Oh my gosh, I'm way ahead of myself. Spring tomorrow, and it will feel like spring. We'll start off with a few showers, and we'll end up with a few sunny breaks. How about that? I'm ready for it. Ready for summer, too. That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for joining (laughs) us. Have a good weekend.